Hi and welcome to the new Health Club podcast. Psychedelics are experiencing a renaissance, developing into a tool to help us go through life. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health, personal progress and optimization? Will they change our lifestyles and lives forever? I'm sure they will. On the new Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors from the emerging world of psychedelics. So please listen and enjoy. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs can be punishable by law. Please keep this in mind. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Welcome and hello to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. We are coming to you now on a weekly basis. And why is that? Well, we live in times that require new tools for our lives, and we think psychedelics can be one of them. I guess today is Dr. Ben Sessa. He's an approved MDMA and psilocybin psychotherapist, currently a senior research fellow at Bristol and Imperial College London Universities. He's a co-founder and director of the UK Breaking Convention Conference. Dr. Sessa is becoming well known for his MDMA trials and did a TED talk about treating childhood trauma with MDMA in 2016. He thinks MDMA could be psychiatry's antibiotic. Today I talked to Ben about trauma. So, What if after the crisis we are just experiencing in these times of coronavirus will leave a lot of people with traits of PTSD, which means post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, Ben has a very specific point of view if it comes to our resilience today. And since Ben is a British, well-spoken gentleman, you should listen what he has to say. So please enjoy today's podcast. Okay. So we're here on FaceTime <laughs> with Dr. Ben Sessa, right? Yeah. Hi. How are you doing in Bristol? Say hi from Bristol. <laughs> Hello from Bristol. Yeah, I'm doing very well indeed. Um, okay. Lovely sunny day here today. Okay, great. We're happy that you... Oops, is this your... Or this is me? The, the email? That, that's me, sorry. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, you doing a very interesting work and a lot of people already told me about you um, researching basically MDMA against or to, to cure actually a severe trauma in people so yeah. please tell us how this is going to work and what are you exactly doing so um, most if not all chronic long term mental health problems that have any kind of anxiety component which includes PTSD and so often addictions and uh, generalized anxiety, are due to a stuckness or rigidity in terms of patients being able to move forward and tackle their symptoms. Um, and what MDMA-assisted psychotherapy does is gives the opportunity to address those issues um, in a psychotherapeutic context. Okay. So it's yeah. a uh, it's a radically new way of looking at the way we use drugs to enhance psychotherapy to provide effective psychotherapy for these very stuck patients. 
So you you had your I saw, just saw your TED talk before uh, like last week already, and I mean you talked about this one woman who basically has abusive parents, and then pretty pretty sure like her next forty fifty years are going to be related to any kind of visits in psychiatry or to spend her life on antidepressants basically. So, I mean, it sounds like um, we kind of underestimate this kind of childhood trauma in a way, I felt. Yeah, very much so. And worse than that, um, we have sympathy and empathy and understanding for abused children when they're children. But then we forget about that developmental trajectory where they go on to become so often difficult, maladaptive, antisocial adults often with addictions and other difficult behaviours that end up in people failing to be empathic and sympathetic. Um, and that's, so that's a real problem in society. And it's failing these patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I mean, but at the moment, it seems like the, let's say, the awareness for this new kind of psychedelic treatment is, is rising pretty fast. I mean, it feels like, I mean in the last, I don't know, year, I feel. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's a, it's a good thing that there's also a, kind of a market developing around this that will actually fund more studies probably than ever before? Um, it's an excellent thing that we're seeing a medicalization of psychedelics because this is increasing accessibility to these medicines to, for the patients that could benefit from them. So it's not just about funding more research, it's about actually setting up clinics um, in readiness for these drugs becoming approved to be prescribed um, for treatments. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great situation that we're, we're seeing this taken on by the mainstream. Okay. And I mean, how do you, maybe you can talk a little bit about like how actually a study works or how you set up a study what like what is the let's say do you have a specific aim like for example um it's about al like alcohol addiction and how this is related to used to like childhood trauma or to trauma in in early youth kind of i find that super interesting how you would actually be able to cure these things and not just um kind of like you describe in your talk for example just to keep like a machinery going that would actually um, just mean further medication for most people. Um, so what was your question? How do you set up a study? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, the thing is, when it comes to doing human pharmacology research, first thing to say is it's very expensive and time-consuming, and it costs an awful lot of money to do human pharmacology research, whether with psychedelics or anything else. So the first, the first major barrier or challenge, is funding. Um, most of this early research has come from philanthropic donors as opposed to um, governments um, because it's so new. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the real barrier so far has been finding the funding. Once you've got your funding in place, you then need to work with an academic institution, um, so a university department or whatever, um, and go through the ethics channels and the local medicines agency and the home office and all the other hoops you have to jump through in order to use these compounds, which are, you know, Schedule One mm -hmm. um, drugs, which means it's very costly and time-consuming to research them. So it's, it's a lot of money. I mean, our project 
which has taken about four years so far, has cost around about £850,000. Mm -hmm. So you need a lot of money to do these. And this is a small study on 14 people. Okay. And I mean, how do you kind of, I mean, raise kind of awareness that this is, besides you going on, on con like uh, conferences and talking about it, so, uh, I mean, for example, for example, in England, to make this available for most most people that actually were looking, are looking for this. So can you just apply for a study and then if you're... Uh, yeah. In a situation. You, as I said, you have to be working through an academic department. You have to be working through a registered research unit. Now, that can usually that's a university or academic department. There are private research units as well. You can't just like do this in your kitchen at home. Mm -hmm. You have to you have to be go through all the proper channels because um, it has to be a licensed trial. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then how how long do you think this is going to take until you could just come? to your clinic and say, okay, I want to do this and this is my predisposition. Can I just take mm. part in a treatment? So it depends on what compounds you're interested in. You can do that already with ketamine-assisted therapy mm -hmm. because ketamine is already a licensed medicine. Um, you would be using it off-license if you're using it for a psychiatric condition, but that's not so difficult to do um, with the right sort of a, a support in place. Um, MDMA and psilocybin are still unlicensed, so you can only use those compounds if you're doing a research study. Um, but we're moving to the point at which they're going to become licensed, and then we can have clinics set up delivering those. MDMA is looking at being licensed in about uh, another two years or so, and psilocybin slightly behind that. Okay. But I mean, do you think that I mean, this, of course, this will take place in, in a clinical context, definitely. But I mean, for example, there are already a couple of, let's say, retreats worldwide where you can, I mean, even if you don't have a condition, you can just go there and kind of experience like a, answering a big life question that you might have with the help of psychedelics. So what do you think about that? Do you think this is going to become a really common tool for people to use instead of psychotherapy? Um, well, I mean, it's more than just even if you don't have a condition, they actually wean out people who do have yeah, conditions exactly. mm -hmm. because they're not using the drug as a medicine for a medical condition. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to be considered healthy and well to do those retreats. So it's almost it's a very different paradigm for how we're trying to develop them as medicines. We're trying to develop them as medicines specifically for people with severe mental health problems, whereas meantime a completely different industry has grown up um, providing these drugs to non-clinical populations um, who specifically don't have mental health problems or mm -hmm. physical health problems in order to experience them for personal growth and development. So, yeah, that's another really interesting and very valid use of the medicines. Um, it's a different pathway to the one that we're trying to do getting these as medicines Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's about half a dozen or so in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, places in, in doing ayahuasca in South America as well. Mm -hmm. And how, how did you get into the in this whole topic? What made you really interested in it, like, in the first place? Um, well, I was very interested in psychedelics before I went to medical school. 
I was interested in, um, I'd read a lot about the history of psychedelics and I was interested in the whole 60s drug culture thing. And then when I went to medical school, I, I tried to study this and there was nothing on the medical curriculum. And then when I went and studied as a psychiatrist and began working clinically, I wanted to redress that balance. So I wrote a paper in 2004 that got published. I think it was the first um, paper on psychedelics in the British medical press since the 60s. And then uh, as the years went on and I was just working as a psychiatrist, I became increasingly disillusioned with the current lack of efficacy and safety of maintenance therapies. So that sort of drove me on further. And, you know, and it's, it, at the time when I started, 15 years ago, um, in, in psychedelics, it was a very small research community, certainly amongst doctors. There were mm -hmm. no other doctors in the UK doing it. Um, of course, it's much, much bigger now when we've got loads and loads of research trials all over the world. Okay. And, um, I mean, like, if you look at these numbers at the uh, World Health Organization, like over 300 million also in regards of new anxiety as a disease that has not been a disease, like, I feel like 10 years ago, nobody really talked about anxiety. So why do you think that like anxiety and kind of like, I mean, it's almost like hard to describe, but more like a feeling of just yeah, being under stress or anxious and not really leading your life. Why, why is this so increased or like, it feels like it has increased that people are kind um, of, I think uh, partly increased reporting. Perhaps that's a good thing, that there's a stigma reduced and people are more readily going to see the doctor and talk about that. Um, so although that means the numbers go up, that's actually a positive thing if people are going and, and seeking support because of stigmatization being reduced. Mm -hmm. um, then, of course, there's the whole arguments about just that we're living much more anxious lives and we have less connectivity with community and one another and family. We're stressed with consumerism and commercialization, everyone's working two jobs to pay their mortgages, no contact with their children, you know, all sorts of socio-political, socio-cultural reasons why why the Western world at least seems to be wallowing in anxiety at the moment. I mean, looking at all the stuff in the in in the news today, you know, yeah. it's uh, everyone is just desperate to be worried about stuff. Yeah, which brings us to the... <laughs> the unavoidable topic number one i mean that like you said there's no other article and if there's another article it's not clickbait anymore whatever it is that's what i learned today mm -hmm. you have to put something in a headline today with corona or like covid otherwise it's not going to be clicked mm -hmm. so anything that comes your way now just yeah. what i learned today so but i mean again what we talked about earlier before we started recording what i find very interesting is that a lot of people seem to be already kind of in shock or kind of um, traumatized, let's call it, uh, by the things that are happening right now. You have to stay in or you're supposed to stay in. You have to do home office, all these things. So, I mean, meaning that a couple of months later, some people might suffer from their traumatized experience which is like a thinking that, I mean, I'm just making this up now in a way because I already hear a lot of people saying that, okay, I will never recover from this moment when I realize, well, I can't go out, I can't behave anymore just like I used to. What is this all going to mean? Is the world going to go? 
down like the way we used to know it. So I mean, I would yeah. be very careful of calling that post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. You know, it's actually offensive towards people who've okay. experienced severe sexual abuse or severe combat PTSD mm -hmm. to suggest that having to stay in and wonder whether you've got enough rolls of toilet paper is yeah. giving considered PTSD. You know, this is not anywhere close to what as a, a psychiatrist would consider trauma. I think if people are considering this as to be a deeply traumatic episode, they really need to go home and rethink their life. That would be my personal Which opinion. they have to do now because they have to stay at home. <laughs> so, but I mean... I think if you saw patients <laughs> yeah. with PTSD, you would see that there's very little correlation between the experiences yeah. that they've had that traumatized them and also the presentation that, that results. You know, PTSD is a really severe and awful debilitating illness um, with very severe causation and very severe presentation. Um, I don't think that the current concerns are going to come close to that, but maybe I'm wrong about that. But I mean, an interesting thing is what you say is that, um, for example, older people, let's say, who have an experience, any kind of experience to the Second World War or the years after they seem to be like well you know what not, i'm not gonna say whatever but they're kind of this is how it is now and then people who i feel who'd never had an experience like this where they really had to kind of behave in a certain way to actually be safe or like just you know just for for other people to help also other people they have a severe problem with that so that it just can't adapt to a certain community spirit right now, I feel. Well, yeah, um, this doesn't have much to do with psychedelics, but I guess it's this is about just, well, I don't know, I don't want to be disparaging towards millennials, but I think, yeah, there are there does seem to be a somewhat of a shift of what things actually are difficult and traumatic these days compared to what future um, previous generations have experienced. Well, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no, I just I, th I just think it has something to do with psychedelics because I feel that this is now kind of coming towards as a solution for any kind of irritation in life also. I mean, like if you say you just can't get over certain things, even as a healthy person, you might be able to go twice or three times a year to a retreat and just work on your <laughs> bad, I don't know, um, dreams or like your sleeplessness or your things that can't you can't get off your mind so i feel it seems that it's becoming a really almost like a normal tool for this i mean or maybe well, it is yeah, already like i said <coughs> like i said this is a very different subject to the yeah. one that i'm involved in yeah. which is developing these compounds for treatment of severe mental illnesses okay. but as you said you're quite right there is also a place for these in what you might call the worried well or people oh. who are just seeking some kind of personal growth and development mm -hmm. or for relatively minor things. But in order to have these as medicines, you would have to satisfy the very strict diagnostic criteria for mm -hmm. these severe disorders like addictions or PTSD. And so, I mean, addictions, um, it seems that the number also is very much on the rise on a worldwide level, scale. Um, Is that is that true, or is it just a perception? Um, I think I think certainly with certain compounds like alcohol, yeah. Um, 
I think that the, the levels of people with addictions with severe severe addictions, things like and especially things like opiates, um, that's certainly been on the rise in terms of prescribed opiates. Um, there's a big difference between drug use and drug misuse. You know, most drugs are taken most of the time by most people benignly mm-hmm. um, without addiction or misuse. Um, and the small percentage, sort of 1% to 2% that develop severe addictions to compounds, any compounds, generally are those people with a pre-existing trauma history of some kind. So most people can use alcohol or cannabis or even cocaine or even heroin you may be you you may be surprised to hear without becoming addicted. Um, the one or two percent who use those compounds regularly and become addicted tend to be the people with a pre-existing trauma history. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, the use of drugs is a bit of a red herring when it comes to those people who'll find drugs problematic. Um, and even if all the drugs were legally available, like alcohol is, we probably wouldn't see such a large increase in addiction because addiction isn't really about drugs drugs aren't actually anything to do with addiction addiction is about a biopsychosocial state of mind and brain that occurs very early in life long before you ever get anywhere near a drug interesting so that means also you could be like you can be addicted to relationships to to other things that are not substances right kind of you can you can um and again it's sometimes difficult to quantify that and they don't they're not as usually as clear-cut as comp- addiction to compounds, whether you have very clear things like drug-seeking behavior or crime associated with mm-hmm. uh, financing that, that addiction, mm-hmm. um, or the psychosocial impairments and destruction of relationships and that kind of thing. Um, they're usually a bit more apparent when it comes to compounds compared to other things like gambling or sex addiction or mm-hmm. relationship addiction, okay. whatever that is. I mean, I think we find codependence across the board in many mental health problems mm-hmm. um, mm, okay. because a lot of maladaptive behavior that comes from many mental health problems is also born out in unstable or uh, maladaptive relationships with people, um, which kind of goes back to attach- attachment disorder and trauma um, right? uh, and those kinds of issues. Okay. So pretty much a lot of things are leading back to early traumatizing pretty yeah. much everything, um, right? Yeah, very much so. Because those very early years of attachment um, become the blueprint by which we measure um, how we, you know, our, our core fundamental aspects of personality and self, you know, what is love, what is trust, what is lying, what is cheating, Mm. what is uh, having a strong ego and being able to buffer assumed attacks or, you know, do we react defensively and aggressively or do we have a well-preserved ego that allows us to to buffer those kinds of things? Um, And a lot of that goes back to the very early years and the quality of your relationship with your primary caregiver. And if that's a good quality relationship in which you're praised and uh, made to feel worthy and positive, then you have you develop a very strong resilience to later adulthood problems. Whereas if you've grown up in an atmosphere of fear and pain and exclusion um, and trauma, um, you have less resources to manage those adult relationships. 
So, yeah, addiction, um, attachment, early attachment relationships really are a crucial part of our later adult development. Mm -hmm. I mean, what would you say, like, if somebody really wants to do this now and wants to, has done so many therapies but can get rid of their addiction and would like to enter a study or, like, get in touch with people where he could actually... Yeah try to do this MDMA mm. therapy? What what would be the option right now well, at this point? The simple answer at that moment now, the options are very, very limited. So there's only been one MDMA clinical study in this country, in the UK, and mm -hmm. that's ours in Bristol, and we've now finished it. So there's no other ongoing MDMA studies for any indication in the UK. Mm -hmm. There are a number of studies trying to get underway in Europe, and there's a whole bunch of studies in the States which are phase three development studies for PTSD, for MDMA. And then there's a whole bunch of studies all over the world. Um, so the MDMA stuff is done by a group called MAPS. Yeah. And, the, mm -hmm. and, the, and there's also a bunch of phase two, almost phase three studies for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression run by a group called Compass Pathways. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a psilocybin depression uh, study now in Bristol. Okay. And there's four or five sites in the UK doing that. So at the moment, the only way you can access these um, psilocybin or MDMA legally is through one of these studies. And it's very difficult to get onto the studies, and they're only taking a small handful of people. So this, the, the very sad answer at the moment is it's almost impossible to receive legal MDMA or psilocybin therapy at the moment. You're, you could do, but you'll be very lucky because you need to have a study running in your country mm -hmm. and you need to be accepted and be eligible for that. And they always have very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria that makes recruiting very difficult. So what can we do to change it? Tell me. <laughs> we, well, I would say if you're that desperate, start your own study, to be honest. I mean, okay. You know, like I said, it's when, when you're asking researchers to put on a £850,000 study for 14 people, wow. it's not really there to meet clinical need. You know, that's going to come further down the line. So if, you, if you're desperate to use MDMA or psilocybin now um, and you can't get on a study, your only option is to break the law. Um, and to go to an underground therapist. Mm -hmm. Or you can go to the, one of these retreats in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, but again, they, they're not really taking people with yeah. mental health issues. Yeah. In fact, they try and screen out mental health issues. So, you know, it's a bit, of a bit of a desperate situation, really, but that's the bottom line. But then that's how it's been for the last 50 years. You know, these drugs have yeah. always been illegal, um, and we're moving towards a change in that, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, let me know what we can do here for you to support you. <laughs> um, well, I think keep pushing your MP and the government to relax the laws on, on these drugs. You know, it might be that recreational use comes before their medicine licensing. I mean, that's what's happened in Oakland and in uh, mm -hmm. Oregon, places like that where plant medicines are legal for recreational use. Mm -hmm. But they're not But they're not medicines. So... Um, then patients could access them recreationally, but of course it wouldn't be under the sort of same strictly monitored protocols or support that you might get from research or from medicine use. Yeah, I mean, it seems a very complicated situation still in Europe also. I feel like in America it's kind of faster 
I mean, in, in Canada, I think, right? I mean, Canada is another place. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things that's so weird about drug laws is that they are so different all over the world, which really says something about the stupidity of drug laws in the first place. You know, if you take yeah. things like rape, murder, torture, fraud, theft, pretty much every country, not every country, but pretty much every country all over the world has pretty similar levels of legality for these things yeah. because they're recognized as illegal, dangerous activities that need to be controlled. The very fact that there's such a wide, disparate range of interpretations of drug laws says something about them not being that important. Um, and the fact that some people can interpret them in completely different ways really says something about the actual relative harms yeah. of those activities, doesn't it? Because you don't get that with other so-called crimes. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You know, well. how can cannabis be completely free and legal in California, but you can go to prison for six years if you're found with a tiny bit of it in the UK? It oh, really? Is that, is that really that but In trick? theory, that's what the law says. Wow. Okay. I mean, in practice, people don't go to... But I mean, can I ask you... small amounts of cannabis, but that's what the law says. But do you think, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot. Do you think through the Brexit and like England's independence, I mean, it's actually a thought that it might go faster now since nobody has to check in with Europe anymore? Well, if anything, Europe's much more relaxed than the UK. Okay. So we'd be probably better off staying with Europe. I mean, look, okay. in terms of cannabis laws, look at you know me medical cannabis in France and Germany and Portugal yeah. and Spain and, uh, and Switzerland are you know years ahead of the UK. So um, whether what exactly what's going to happen to the UK being independent from Europe and its cannabis laws, it's it's difficult to tell whether that's going to be a good or bad thing. Mm. Okay. One way or the other, the UK is just so archaic and behind, which is ironic, say with cannabis, because we really lead the way in psychopharmacology research in other in other parts of science, but we've just got the most appallingly backward cannabis laws. But I mean, with psychedelics, it's like seems like so many things are happening in the UK, like Europe, uh, your studies, then the Imperial College and Compass you, um, you mentioned. Exactly. So it's yeah. like the number one country, it feels like, right? I mean, yeah, at that, the moment. that's the point I just made, yeah, that it cool. seems strange that we're so backwards when it comes to cannabis. But yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Okay. I think you have a lot of things to do today. It's like every schedule is changing like crazy at the yeah, moment. Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult because conferences are being cancelled yeah. and changed and postponed so everything that was all organized in place is now suddenly disorganized and yeah. needs to be worked on so uh every meeting i'm having today and all of last week is all about what should we do <laughs> yeah no of <laughs> course forward. and everything moves to zoom or google hangouts pretty much everything mm -hmm. here at least kind of yeah everyone's going a bit mad yeah <laughs> but you seem cool <laughs> you don't well, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty chilled it's sunny outside so. okay good. <laughs> I like it good <laughs>